Hello and welcome to Food To Go, the podcast brought to you by New Food, a leading B2B for the professional food and drink sector. I'm Beth and Grills and as ever, I'm joined by my co-host Joshua Minchin. And later on, we'll also have Paul Williams, Group Head of Ethical Trading and Human Rights on the show too. But in the meantime, hello, Josh. Hello, Beth. And very radio of you this morning. Very radio voice. I feel like you're presenting the breakfast show. Thank you. I'm, um, yeah, obviously just getting better. Caller number five <laughs> incoming. Yeah, liked it a lot. Maybe we'll give away a car or something later. I don't know. Yeah, ethics. Really excited for this one. Really, really important topic. You'll hear from Paul later. Not the easiest of conversations, but... No, a really important one, I think. It is a difficult conversation. What I love about Prince's group is the fact that you actually talk about it. As Paul said, it's, it's a tough conversation to have, but you have got to have it, and not everybody does. Mm. And I, what I thought would be helpful here is to have a brief explanation of what ethics is, because it is a huge topic. And who better to define it than the Food Ethics Council? This is taken from their website. So food ethics allows us to judge what should happen in the food system. Whenever we make a decision, we take the opportunity to create positive change. With this comes power and responsibility. Do you think they were watching Spider-Man when they wrote this? Might have been, good reference. Yeah. As individuals, we make food decisions that have ethical implications every day. So think about, you know, the groceries that you buy, how we eat, even, you know, how we vote as well. Within business, people face ethical choices whenever they decide what to do, how to source products, how to run their businesses. And within governments, decision makers deal with concerns about human health, animal welfare, environmental issues, and also trade justice as well. So there's kind of lots of different tiers to this, you know, lots of different entities dealing with, you know, ethics and lots of different ways in which ethics kind of can be embodied. The website goes on to say food ethics allows us to define our values, i.e. what we think is good and our principles, what we think is right in order to redirect our thinking. I think that's a really great explanation. Yeah, I do. And I really like that last bit about divine, like what we think is good, what we think is bad. I think ethics is that core set of things that you hold as a person. I heard it described in a food safety sense recently as that's not who we are, that is who we are. I think ethics really does define who you are as a person and who you are as a business. Mm. As a person, it's no, I, I'm not going to do that because that's not who I am as a person. Mm. And I think as a business, it's you can extrapolate that. We're not going to do X, Y and Z or we are going to do this because that's who we are. I think it's a really, really emotional thing. I think it's very, very, it should be very, very close to everything you do. Is it widespread in the food industry? I'm not sure. That's something that Paul will mention later on but it's certainly taking on more importance isn't it both with consumers and with and with manufacturers mm, i remember a school no it was a college uh, project i had and they said um we had to no i no i'm not really sure what we were doing but anyway <laughs> we had to describe the difference between morals and ethics yeah well, i did that one I, I can't remember the difference by the way i can't either but what you were saying sounds very much like your morals. Your morals are what you think is right, isn't it? And ethics is kind of what society thinks is right. That might be a terrible, terrible thing. And I'm sounding very philosophical here and not in the best of ways, but I think, you know, the two kind of, they join together, don't they? Yeah, there is a difference. And we tend to say this every week, so maybe we need to be a bit better read. But listeners, if you do know, write in, let us know. (laughs) 
Let us know. We're happy to learn. I'm imagining when you said write in someone with a, a letter and a candle. Yeah, dear writing. Sarah, imagine yeah. really annoyed, scratching the paper. Yeah, maybe it's a win. I'm sorry if I've annoyed you, any uh, philosophy graduates out there. I think ethics is that code of things, isn't it? I always think of it as a code. Like it's, it's almost in one sheet of A4, mm. a list of rules and values of what, how you live your life. Yeah. Or as a business, how you operate. Whether that means fair pay for a fair day's work, whether mm. that means that everybody is equal where they should be. It's that set of values of, of what we do when no one's looking. Mm. Everyone is very, very ethical when people are looking at them. Yeah. Um, it takes a special kind of bad person to be nasty when someone's watching. Yeah, I've opened up a whole can of worms, haven't I? But let's turn into a different type of can. Can tomatoes. Oh, God, dear. oh what a was yes we were lucky enough to have the chance to speak to paul from princes they own brands like flora bachelors and napolina there's the tomato reference thank you very much and we are focusing on tomatoes today because paul took the time to talk to us about the way in which this tomato product is making a positive impact Hi Paul, welcome to food to go thank you so much for joining us. Hi there, hi, how are you doing Josh? Hi Bethan. Hi, uh, lovely to talk to you again Paul. It's been a while hasn't it? So Paul, at Princess, you've been taking lots of steps to enhance social sustainability across the tomato supply chain, invest in the protection of human rights for example, to support the fight against the exploitation practices. I must say though, you don't always hear about exploitation when it comes to tomatoes. We hear about it in coffee, chocolate, we've done some work on both of those sectors. So can you just give us a bit more context about what's what's occurring in this field in tomatoes? Is it a big problem? Great question, Josh. Yeah, it's a bit surprising, really, because there has been lots of media coverage over recent years. But clearly, you know, we can't compete with Wagatha Christie or some of the other sort of challenges around <laughs> um, Brexit and the war in Ukraine. But, but yeah, you know, for, from our perspective, there are two main salient human rights risks existing in Italian tomatoes. And if you think about them in terms of the first one being forced labour, which includes things like human trafficking and exploitation, and typically of undocumented workers. And then the second one is about the working and living conditions. So again, exploitation based on how and why people come to Italy or Southern Europe more generally to, to try and seek a better life. If you think about the context within Italy, so that is the largest tomato processor within the EU and the third largest globally. So it's a massive player when you think about the Italian tomato sector. We also have our own operation, so Prince's Industrial Alimentari, producing Napolina brand in the south of Italy. And there is a difference here in terms of the south versus the north of Italy. So within the south, typically it's a higher level of what we call labour harvesting versus mechanical harvesting. So it tends to be more people in the south because the, the sort of geographical regions means it's more difficult to use mechanical harvesters. What that means is there's a, a greater reliance on workers. So, for example, within Southern Europe, there's very much a strong dependence on migrant workers within the sector to harvest those tomatoes. Within Italy as well, we know that there are sort of challenges around unknown numbers of undocumented workers. So, again, you're probably more than familiar, and I'm sure your listeners are really familiar with the challenges around uh, migrant workers generally arriving into Southern Europe over the last few years. And what that's meant is there is the exploitation opportunities for gang masters to operate and they can exploit vulnerable economic migrants and basically utilise them to their advantage in order to, to seek opportunities for themselves. 
And essentially that means that there are risks around exploitation of migrant workers harvesting tomatoes, not just in Italy, but we believe in most of southern Europe. But from our perspective, very much interesting in terms of that link and the risks around tomato supply chains. That is really interesting. And thank you so much for clarifying that, because I was going to say, when you, you talk of Italy, you don't think exploitation, you know, in, in a developed country in the 21st century. I know, it's crazy, Beth. I mean, you think about sort of slavery and that was consigned to the history books where it firmly belongs. But the shocking reality, sadly, is that even today, no country, no supply chain, no business is free absolutely from modern slavery. Yeah, that is incredibly sad. I mean, who, you sort of went into it briefly there, but can you expand on who exactly is being exploited and in what ways? Yeah, so typically it's any sort of individual who doesn't have the the voice, doesn't have the power, the ability to seek a sort of formal standard of employment. So vulnerable workers that we see within Southern Europe tend to be those economic migrant workers. So they'll tend to be male African workers who have crossed the Mediterranean to try and find work to improve their own position or for that for their families. So generally it's those who are who are at risk of being exploited due to, you know, illegal wages being paid, poor working conditions, lack of contracts of employment. But also we see in terms of exploitation of individuals, but also exploitation in terms of the foods that are produced. So it's not just the labour within the fields, but actually we're seeing more and more exploitation in terms of adulteration of food products. So there's more and more products that are made that claim to be of Italian origin, but actually when they are tested and, and proven to found that it is in fact non-Italian origin. And again, even today we're seeing those sort of products arriving on the shelves in the UK. Paul, that's really interesting. I just had one follow-up question to what you just said. Have you noticed a rise in exploitation that's coincided with the what some people have called the, the migrant crisis from, say, 2014 onwards, where we're, we're seeing a, a lot more people making that treacherous journey across the Med? Have you seen more exploitation in the sector since, say, 2015-16? Absolutely, Josh. I mean, the sort of the statistics are quite sobering. So, whilst there was maybe a slight decline during the COVID pandemic, and obviously the the sort of workers that were migrant workers having to go home to support family and, and their loved ones. But actually, yeah, the general sort of trend of rising migration, rising inequality, means that, yeah, there is the huge amount of supply and demand mechanism, which means, unfortunately, the number of people who are, you know, working for gangmasters in the south of Italy is on the rise. I think as well, we also need to bear in mind that there's a lack of an effective legal alternative. So at the moment that we may find when we speak to our growers that they definitely want to use and in the past have wanted to use sort of more formal legal mechanisms, but there just hasn't been that system in place. So again, it's really one of those challenges of supply and demand in terms of if there's an availability, and for example, if you know as a farmer it's going to rain or there's going to be a huge hailstorm in the next 24 hours, you will ultimately need that short-term turnaround of a, a number of workers to arrive on the field. And unfortunately, due to a lack of an effective system in place to do that, some in the past farmers have turned to these illegal gangmasters to try and support them. Why isn't there an effective legal solution? Is it because migration is, unfortunately in politics at the moment, a difficult subject, shall we say, to speak about? Yeah, it's. I mean, there's a number of reasons, I guess, behind this. So in the past, it's been found there just hasn't been that mechanism to quickly turn around and process numbers of workers in a short period of time. So again, if you think about the agricultural sector, very much the Italian tomato season is a very short window in the summertime. So harvesting generally is fairly unplanned. So there may be a sort of window of two or three weeks. 
but again that's very much driven by the weather conditions and climate so if as i say a farmer is expecting a hailstorm or really poor weather they ultimately face the tough decision of i'm either going to have to wait for the formal mechanism to come through or i'm going to effectively lose that crop so we have seen improvements over the last few years with the rete de lavoro and a few other schemes that have existed in the market but again, I think there's much more work that needs to be done to try and ensure that this happens across the sector, not just in improvements in Italian tomatoes. And again, just for some other context, we know that migrant workers that tend to work in, in the Italian tomato sector won't just limit themselves to, to that sector. So they will be in Italy for a long period of time. They will move around different agricultural products depending on when they are, are harvested. So it will be Italian tomatoes, then it may be melons, citrus fruit and, and other fruit and salad items. So. So there's that movement of, of migrant workers across Italy as well, depending on the product. So I suppose it's a whole food sector problem, not just a, a tomato sector problem. Paul, you've set the scene brilliantly there. And as you say, it is a sobering topic and it is, it's a sobering thought to have. Can you tell us what Princess is doing to work on this area? What, what are you doing to, to alleviate some of the problems that we've just spoken about? We've done a huge amount, particularly since sort of 2015 when we started to conduct in-field audits and inspections at a sort of farm level. But we've also worked with multi-stakeholders on the ground. So we recognise that, yes, we've got a team of agronomists and we've got our own manufacturing site, a, a factory essentially in Italy. But we know the greater prevalence of risks is very much at the farm level. So we've been working with our um, suppliers, our growers, but also with customers and other third parties on the ground, like the Ethical Trading Initiative, to hold lots of ethical forums for our growers. And again, what that really is intended to do is trying to train and share best practices, but also recognise that no supply chain is perfect. So we want growers to be aware that we're not expecting that they are going to be perfect from day one. We know this is a journey. We want to help and work with them to improve different areas of environmental and social sustainability. So that's been really key for us. We've also worked with on-the-ground charities. So, for example, with a, an organisation called Caritas, who have launched their something called Lavoro Senza Frontiere, which is Work Without Borders. And what this is essentially doing is trying to find roles within our own manufacturing site for those victims of modern slavery within Italy. And that really helps then, uh, you know, trying to embed some of the risks, but also some of the insights and that engagement and trust that we can develop with our growers and also the workers on the ground within Italy. Really proud to be recognised by Oxfam through their Fighting Inequality Award in 2021. And again, just a, a nice piece of recognition for the work that we've done with Oxfam, with Caritas and with lots of other organisations. But again, we know there's much more to do. We've also worked with the largest agricultural union in Italy called Coldaretti, and that's been to ensure that we have taken a different approach really and pivoted our business so instead of focusing on annual contracts we're now very much focused on that three-year supply contract to our growers to enable them to have the financial stability and trust that we're going to be there tomorrow and in the future to work with them. Yeah you mentioned you know the Italian Agriculture Association Coldaretti and also I just need to mention here to listeners within our scripts ye of little faith of my Italian accent Josh spelt that out phonetically for me. Um, we've been here before Paul I mean people this is the podcast will know we've had a few <laughs> now and again butchers a European language whether it be German whether it be Italian whether it be Spanish so I just thought we'd better on the safe side but luckily you pronounced it for us. <laughs> I was gonna be fine but anyway you know, I, I'd love to hear more about the expanded partnership with Coldaretti. Thank you very, very much. Good. Can you tell us more about this agreement and how it will help promote ethical and safe trade within the tomato supply chain? Sure, absolutely. I mean, if you think about 
Colderetti, so a large Italian agricultural union, they've got access to, to growers on the ground, they've got the leverage and they've got that trust, which is really important for us because we don't just want it to be seen as princes dictating to our growers. These are the really high ethical standards and environmental standards that we expect you to achieve without the help and support. I think for us as well, the sobering statistic that Colderetti published was for every euro that was spent by consumers in stores across Europe, Italian farmers on average only receive 15 euro cents, so only 15%, and that then diminishes to only about 6% when it comes to processed products. So we know that there's huge pressure on growers, on farmers, to make sure that they're really investing and able to support the industry for the future. So that's why with our three-year supply agreement with Colderetti and our growers, we're working with the University of Foggia to make sure that the price that we pay for tomatoes and those raw materials is a genuinely true reflective cost of what it means to grow and harvest those. Essentially, what does that mean? Well, it means financial stability, long-term survival, but also recognises the efforts that are being made to growers. And last year alone, we paid 3.9 million euros in an additional bonus for sustainability efforts. So again, we recognise this is a huge amount of investment and time and effort across our collaborative partners, but it's really about empowering the the growers, the Colderetti um, organisations and their members to make sure that we have an industry effectively for tomorrow and also that we want growers to continue to choose to work with us so we know that they have opportunities to work with lots of different people in the industry but we want them to be really proud to work with Princes and Napolina brand. Mm. At, at the start of this podcast, Josh and I were having a conversation about what ethics means. You mentioned earlier about adulteration, and I know that the framework you've got in place with Colderetti is also going to tackle Italian food fraud, a market worth more than 100 billion euros, more than twice the value of Italian food exports to the entire world. I'd just like to know your definition of what kind of ethics means to you because obviously mentioning adulteration there it expands not just you know in terms of kind of the workforce but also kind of genuine products yeah absolutely i think for me the best sort of definition that i heard many years ago was ethics is how you behave when you know that you're not being watched so again it's having that really strong purpose as an individual as a company that sort of moral compass to say even if I'm not being viewed and, and being fully transparent all the time, I'm still going to do absolutely the right thing for people, for the environment and for the survival of the industry. So I think for me, fundamentally, it's just, yeah, it's that moral compass and just making sure that you can stand by your, your efforts, irrespective of whether you think you'll be judged or not by a third party. What I also would like to hear about is your work with Oxfam Italy. I believe you recently rolled out monitoring processes and independent uh, assessment of human rights initiatives. But what exactly does that comprise and how will those assessments address issues like exploitation? Great question. Yeah, so I think for us, you know, we recognise, as I say, we've got a small team of agronomists on the ground. We've got our workers in the factories, but... You know, we want our independent assessment of how are we doing, how can we help and support the growers and the farmers that are producing the products for us. So the work with Oxfam Italy is about making sure that we give training on labour rights. We can support our growers in terms of ethical practices, health and safety, but also offering things like free health insurance to cover medical examinations, but also things like access to a help desk. So again, where we don't necessarily have the support and leverage because we're only necessarily focusing on tomatoes for a short period of time. 
working with Oxfam, we can actually make sure that workers are trained so that irrespective of which field and which product they are producing or harvesting, they know what are their rights as a worker, what are the ethical practices, what should be in place to help protect, protect them going forward. I think for us as well, it's also the second part around strengthening transparency. So through the work that we are doing with Oxfam, they are a critical friend to us. So they say, look, this is an area that you're doing really well in, but in order to get from good to great, this is how you can improve even further. And that really helps us to build up that understanding in terms of what we need to do as an organisation, again, to make sure that we are here today, but also in the future for our growers and consumers. Paul, in my head, is still reeling from that start on food fraud, because I think that's absolutely crazy. But that is some really, really good work. I think it's really, really powerful work. You mentioned fair trade and fair pay earlier, which I'm glad you did because it's on our list of, of questions. And as I always say, that anyone would think that we actually prepare for these podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's a pretty sobering stat, isn't it? 15 cents out of every euro goes to a farmer. Do you think, and this is a two-pronged question, it is a bit of a hand grenade. Do you think, one, that consumers are aware of that? Two, do you think they care if the price is low enough? Number one, I, I don't honestly think consumers are aware of this. And even the most ethically aware consumers as you mentioned at the start you know their focus has been historically on things like coca coffee those sort of commodities that have been exposed to to child labor and modern slavery risks so i think there isn't a huge awareness we're certainly trying to tackle that through the napolina brand and the qr code that we've launched on pack because we understand that consumers if they were aware i think would care so in answer to the sort of second part of the question i think it comes back to almost retailers have an obligation to make sure that the consumer's expectation that there are those higher levels of ethical social standards are being met. I think if you were to discuss with most consumers about Napolina brand, they would absolutely and rightly so expect the highest levels of sustainability, whether that's on environmental areas or whether that's on ethical trade areas. And so we've got to make sure that we play our part in educating consumers to make sure that they're really aware that their purchasing decisions really has an impact. You know, we are one player within the industry, but ultimately we want the whole industry to rise up to the top. This is a race to the top for us, not the lowest common denominator, which means that, yeah, consumer awareness definitely has a part to play. And hopefully we are sure that if consumers were more aware of the issues, they would take a much more responsible approach in terms of which products and which brands to buy and which to, to not buy. I think you're absolutely spot on there, Paul. It is, I think, a little bit of outside out of mind. And I don't think it's, you can blame a consumer for expecting a big brand, whether that's a coffee producer, a chocolate manufacturer, or, or like say, Napolino, to be getting it right behind the scenes. I think the human expect that of our manufacturers, and, and, and rightly so. You spoke about advanced contracts earlier. I think that's really, really interesting. It's a really, I think, quite a different way of doing things. You probably answered this question very briefly. Let's expand. What do advanced contracts mean for the farmers that you work with? What difference does it make to them? Yeah, I think for us, if you think about the concept of a contract, it's almost that, that you know, it's the agreement, isn't it? It's that guarantee to work between Prince's, Napolina brand, but also with our growers. And so essentially that's all about security, stability and trust. You know, we absolutely rely on our growers on the ground, our farmers, to make the products that we love and that we sell. So for us, having that advanced contract means that we are guaranteeing that level of support. We also know, and I'm sure you and the listeners are aware, that one of the issues that's been cited frequently by non-governmental organisations is late contracting as a contributor to modern slavery in the supply chain. So again, if we can eliminate one of those elements, one of those risks that feeding into this monster of modern slavery risks, then that's ultimately something that we are really keen to do. 
So signing contracts really early ahead of the season means that you know farmers are aware of what is the price they're going to be paid, and that means that they can invest in their you know resources, whether that's in harvesting equipment or whether that's in people and their own operations to help and support their longevity of supply chain. We also face the the challenge that our approach is different. So we know that historically there's been a different approach in the industry where growers will produce a harvest, but they won't necessarily know what they're going to be paid for that harvest, which to us just seems you know, absolutely crazy. How can a grower produce something and not have the stability in terms of what they're potentially going to be paid? So again, that stability, that security, that trust in terms of here's the contract, here's what we expect of you, here's how we're going to help and support really make sure that we are are there for the future and invest in the long-term growth and success of the industry. That sounds like, it just sounds like the, the standard. That's what everyone should be doing, really. So I think, you know, we should take a moment really here to applaud you guys for doing that. Have you ever experienced a time where you you did see exploitation occurring within your supply chain? And how did princes react yeah, I mean, it's one of these really tough questions that, you know, we are sure that the risks of modern slavery exist within the the onion of various layers within our global supply chains. Whilst I haven't seen it directly within our own operations and the visits that I've undertaken, we know that from the reports and from the third-party ethical audits, there are risks, and certainly those are heightened within certain countries and supply chains. And I think, you know, anybody that denies that modern slavery is not a global issue and that there are some industries or sectors that are immune is is simply not in the understanding and in, in, in the game. I think the challenge that we have is to make sure that we do peel back those onions to make sure that, yes, there may be a number of different tiers within the supply chain, but it's ultimately about having that level of transparency that means that we can build up an understanding, that we can then help and support those suppliers and growers to make sure that they can improve. You know, we've talked about the past about perfect being the enemy of the good we don't expect every single supply chain to be perfect there's always going to be opportunities to learn and develop but i think in terms of the approach that we've taken around transparency really levels of strong governance within the supply chain but also trying to break down those cultural barriers to say look it may not be comfortable to talk about some of the risks and the issues in the broader supply chain but we're here to help we don't necessarily have all of the answers all of the time at various different tiers but we can reach out and use our leverage. So whether that's working with the Ethical Trading Initiative, the Food Network for Ethical Trade, trade unions, NGOs on the ground, that's how together we can try and tackle some of the root causes that are leading to modern slavery and exploitation in the supply chain. I think that's really refreshing your view on, and we've spoken about it before, haven't we, Paul, on kind of total transparency. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be honest and show that you are making progress. Consumers are becoming more interested in the intricacies behind their food. What would you say is the consequence of not being transparent, of being found out of something by a consumer? I think it's hugely problematic and potentially damaging to to brands, to organisations, to to supply chains if they are not going to be transparent. You know, for me, a lack of transparency means one of two things. Either you don't know what's going on, or probably more problematically is you know what's going on but you don't want to share it so I think you know there's two considerations there whether that's on food fraud ethical risks whatever it might be we've seen this again you know with Egyptian raw material being used and sold as 100% Italian just one recent example from this this year to demonstrate that that lack of transparency is causing issues and risks within the supply chain 
So, you know, for me, it's the, it's the whole analogy. I think we've talked about this in the past, Bethan, of the window into the kitchen or the ability to ask the waiter and the chef about the origin of the food. You know, if you don't know, then that's one thing and perhaps you can work together to find out. But if you know and refuse to, to be transparent and, and share that information, well, that creates, for me, more questions. And I think consumers are more savvy now. They expect brands and organisations to be more transparent. I think that's a given now. So yes, it can be difficult, it can be challenging on various different layers and tiers within the supply chain. But I just don't think that consumers are going to put up with brands and products that don't reflect their values. And whether that comes to the forefront by not being transparent or actually being really transparent and open, I think there's an element of, of making sure that you know we all have a part to play in asking those difficult questions of, of the brands, of the products and of the, the retailers that we use to say, I want to understand more about where this product comes from and how it's sourced. Cool. Can I just pick on some, up on something you said just a second ago? Because it just got my mind thinking. You, you said that it can be culturally difficult sometimes to have these conversations. Why is that? Is that because I just suddenly thought, we talk about economic migration. The people that do make that journey come from so many different countries, speak so many different languages. Is that a problem that you face? Or is it culturally difficult to talk about certain problems in Italy, for example? What do you mean by that? I think, it, yeah, there's a couple of things within that, Josh. So if you think around, you know, the topic of, of conversation is modern slavery, you know, and that is an illegal activity and, and has been for many, many years. So when we try and raise the question of modern slavery risks, even if people are aware that there are risks or problems going on within the supply chain, there's almost that reluctance in some cases to talk about it openly for fear of the repercussions. So, you know, when we started our ethical journey, we were very clear and wanted to be really transparent, but we did have that, you know, oh gosh, what are we doing moment where we thought there's a risk that, you know, retailers may choose to exit from a certain supply chain or certain industry if a problem was ever identified. Now, thankfully, most retailers and most consumers that we work with want the transparency, but understand again that, you know, no supply chain is ever going to be perfect. But if you can demonstrate that you understand the risks and the issues, for me, that demonstrates a really strong understanding of partnership and supplier engagement so that you can improve. There is, you're right, the cultural issues around sort of language barriers, but also the norms around talking about the topics more openly. So when I visited certain countries and and certain supply chains, you know, it's almost been to me that, you know, some of the the growers on fields or in factories have been briefed on what to say and what not to say. And for me, it just really comes across very quickly that this is not a genuine understanding of the issue. So again, you've got to be sensitive to the organisation, sensitive to the supply chain and the culture to say, okay, if I can't ask those direct questions, what are the different approaches that I can try and, you know, get a glimpse into what's really going on on the ground? And again, that might be at very, very low tiers within the supply chain where the organisation has a very low level of leverage and ability to change that. But I think this is the opportunity to say, well, okay, we don't have the answers. You don't always have the answers, but let's talk about the problems openly. And again, for us, that's been really key. So part of the organisations that we work with, the ETI, the Food Network for Ethical Trade, is all about sharing those opportunities for problems, but also the solutions, because collectively we can try and tackle some of those cultural barriers to to sharing, to talking transparently, and also to being really open with customers and, and consumers. I think that's great. And I think companies, more and more companies are recognising the importance 
of actually being on the ground. You see it in, you know, companies releasing their impact reports, whether that's kind of ethics or sustainability. And it's it's great to see because how can you know what's going on without actually being there and talking to the communities? I wanted to go on a, a, the same vein, but a slightly different tact because I know that Prince's uses a lot of technology in order to, to be transparent and to make sure that it is being ethical. Can you, on a high level here, give us a little bit more insight into kind of the work that you're doing using blockchain? Sure. So, yeah. So if we use the example of Napolina Tomatoes, so back in 2019, we set ourselves a, a vision to make sure that we were more transparent about our products. So that was about talking about the sustainability credentials. So, yes, we had a responsible sourcing website and we've you know got various different communication methods but it wasn't really reaching the consumer in a direct way so we worked with a third party organization called provenance to launch a blockchain vision and transparency initiative which essentially was as simple as putting a a qr quick response code on pack but then enabling the consumer to scan in the qr code to really understand more about the the journey and the impact of where napolina tomatoes come from so as basic as it sounds that actually opened the window to say we want to understand you know where the products are sourced how are we upholding ethical standards, but also making sure that as a brand of purpose and, and true value, that consumers do have that level of trust and reassurance. So it's a sort of two-way process of the consumer asking the questions, but us providing the ability to answer some of those questions. We've also copied that approach to do the same within Princess Brand Tuna and other products within the Netherlands. And I think what's also really exciting is that where we're working with retailers, they're also keen to, to work with us and copy from a QR code perspective to do the same for their own label. So again, I'm almost a bit of a sceptic in terms of the number of eco-labels and, and things that exist, but I think any mechanism that can provide, again, that window into the world of, of the sourcing and the responsible sourcing, hopefully, of products is really powerful. So I think that's something that we're going to continue to, to invest in and do for many different products going forward. Really interesting. You've mentioned about kind of measurement there as something we spoke about on a previous podcast and just the difficulty really of doing it and actually the importance of it as well. And listeners, if you are interested in technology and learning about, you know, other techniques that, you know, are emerging tools, you really should check out our new reports on emerging technologies and how they're addressing issues such as efficiency, sustainability and food safety. And that's it. Uh, that's my plug there. Oh, what a pro. Yeah. Shameless. Shameless. <laughs> what a pro. Um, Paul, just to, to wrap up, it sounds like you're making so much progress in terms of securing ethical supply chains, whether that means ethical sourcing, whether it means sustainability, whether it means eliminating food fraud. But I would imagine, I would guess, there is still an awful lot of work to be done, whether that's in your own supply chains or others. So I suppose to finish off, what do you think would help push our our industry towards fairer food and drink for everyone? Yeah, great question. And yeah, there's certainly much more to do um, collectively. I think, you know, we certainly believe that progress has been made and will continue to be made. But We can't solve the supply chain challenges alone. We need to collaborate with a broad range of stakeholders, whether that's charities, NGOs, trade unions, customers or competitors. But, you know, we recognise that modern slavery risks are complex. They're large. They're really difficult to get visibility of. So really, that's the sort of the opportunity is to collaborate, to share insights. I think for me, I'd also challenge your listeners, if I may, to say, you know, ask those difficult questions because asking those difficult questions 
will hopefully raise those internal issues to say, well, how can we address and, and make sure that we can answer those questions as a, a manufacturer or as a supplier? And I think finally for us, it's about the opportunity to make sure that we, you know, make sure that we don't see that being perfect is the enemy of the good. And I think ultimately it's about that self-recognition and, and the humbleness to say that we aren't perfect as a food and drink sector. There's always opportunities to improve. But if we pull up the drawbridge and don't talk about the challenges, then nobody is collectively going to address those root causes. So let's be really transparent and share those insights together to improve yeah, those root causes and, and benefits for the wider sector. Paul, that's a brilliant way to finish. Um, some really, really good rallying cries there. The point about consumers is really interesting, isn't it? Because it is our responsibility as an industry, but we do all eat and purchase food and drink as well. So it's also our responsibility to think about what we're buying and, and like you say, demand more from our manufacturers. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I've learned so much. I'm, I'm sure Bethan has too. I don't want to speak for it, but I'm sure you've learned a lot as well, Beth. I have. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's really, really interesting and a really, really crucial topic. So Paul, thank you so much for giving up your, your time this morning and looking forward to speaking to you again soon. Great, thanks very much for your time. That was such an interesting interview, wasn't it? Yeah, really interesting. As I said, interesting and sobering. I think it's interesting where, and I find this, in this job, I find it interesting how what I do interacts with what's going on in the wider world so often. You think of food science as quite a closed box, and that's kind of one box. We have our, our general life, we have food science, but it interacts so much, and no more so than the migration crisis, which has been a crisis for some years now. Yeah. I don't think as a continent we've found a solution yet. No. Let alone as an industry, let alone as an individual company. Very, very sobering. Have you, though, I think this is something I might have raised before, whether it was on a podcast or, or just in general conversation, but I think the QR code that you can scan on, like the tomato, for example, is a really, really great idea, but have you ever seen someone scan anything? I don't mean, you know, using those, the scanners to do your... your in the supermarket. In the supermarket. No, 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 because everyone, it's, it's in and out, isn't it? I think that's... But I don't think that's necessarily the point. I don't think... Maybe it is. I, think, <laughs> I don't think princes want you to scan it. Maybe they do want you to scan it. They're in the aisle. But even if you scan it at home and you see that, I don't even think you need to scan the QR code. I think if the QR code's there and you see this is our ethical credentials... Mm. Because, I mean, you'd have to be pretty daft as a manufacturer to put your credentials up if they were bad. Yeah. No one's put the QR code up saying, yeah, we enslave people all over the world. Here you can see where we enslave people. No one's doing that. If you see a QR code, the company's doing the right thing. Mm. Mm. So I think it's only, the, the very presence of it on a packet would make you think, oh, actually, I'll, I'll purchase that. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like a stamp of reassurance. It is. And do you know what? It is permeating everyday life. I've switched my coffee recently yeah. i've started subscribing to a coffee um, subscription one the coffee's lovely i'll be honest with you it's a lot more expensive and perhaps we can't afford to have coffee from a subscription twice a week because as i'm sure the listeners know we do love our coffee yeah but i can get it from a subscription half the time yeah so i done my research found with it sources ethically they send their bags of coffee on the back there's a signature from the grower you get a little card explain the grower's background the story how it was grown I think it is making a difference. I have certainly thought, well, actually, am I going to buy that bag of coffee? However, I will reinforce the point I made during the interview. I think consumers rightly expect the products that they buy are ethically sourced. If you buy a big brand of chocolate coffee tomato, 
I think you have every right to expect that big name to be doing the right work oh, behind yeah, the scenes. absolutely. I think you have every right to expect that small name to be doing mm. it as well. Maybe that's a naive way of thinking, but you don't, unless you're involved within this sector, and exploitation doesn't just happen within the food sector, it happens within, you know, the fashion sector as well, for example, it's a huge problem. Unless I think you're involved within that sector, you don't really think about it. Do you? I think you just automatically assume, for example, you automatically assume that your food is going to be safe. I was about to say the same thing. Food safety is an expectation. Yeah. And you automatically assume that the product that you have is environmentally friendly. You automatically assume that it's ethical. I think that's evolving. Yeah. Now that expectation of, yes, we want to have it, but do we actually have, expect it to be delivered is another case because people are working on it so for instance you wouldn't automatically go well okay yeah i want my you know my product to be sustainable i want it to be this but then actually i don't always think you know we aren't so we aren't as naive as we used to be is what i'm trying to trying to get no there. i think it's spot on my concern just to add my usual dose of cynicism yeah one is price yeah i think paul's right i think consumers do care Looking back, I think that question was perhaps slightly unfairly phrased. I think consumers care. I think everybody, nobody wants to buy a product which has been manufactured through, through slavery or exploitation. No. no one does. I think knowledge is power, but it's also a burden. And things are getting tight, money-wise, at the moment. Mm -hmm. Everybody from the top to the bottom is feeling the pinch. Didn't and they say it's the highest inflation has risen in 40 years? In the US, food inflation's hit the highest level for 40 years, yeah. I mean, that was only for the last quarter, it's expected to get worse. I mean, we're based in the UK, it's, it feels like the financial news gets worse by the day. My energy bills are just going up and up and up and up. There is a storm coming, if yeah. it's not, and for some people it's already here, I should mention. And, as usual, the most vulnerable people are usually affected the most. Mm -hmm. So if you are in a supermarket looking at bars of chocolate, it's very easy to pick the cheaper chocolate. And I'm not saying for one second that cheaper chocolate is going to be made for exploitation. No. But if you're ethically sourcing products, they do tend to be more expensive. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe in six months' time, I've been in a similar situation with my energy bills. I can't afford to get the coffee subscription, so I'll have to buy a cheaper coffee. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that cheaper coffee is made through modern slavery, but I don't know that it's not. And that's the key point, I think. Mm -hmm. So once you know that a product is ethically sourced, it becomes very hard to give that up and you start delving into the unknowns, I think price is a massive issue. Are consumers ready? I mean, I've always spoken to farmers before when they say consumers do not understand how little farmers make from food. Yeah. And if farmers were to pay a fair price, yeah. it would be like a shock to the system. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting? You was, we're making a lot of, I mean, it is based on things that we have read, you know, from the sector. So it's not just guesswork and obviously from experts like, you know, Paul, but we are in some ways, a, assuming what consumers are are thinking and looking for. So do you know what? We should head back out into the supermarket and do a bit of questioning, shouldn't we, at some point? Yeah, well, go and, go and ask the good folk of London once again which uh, yeah, which coffee, which tomatoes they'll buy. I was really surprised by the wonky veg stuff. I was. I think I think if consumers know, I think they'll buy it buy better. That restored my faith in humanity. Well, the wonky carrots. You're yeah. easily pleased, aren't you? <laughs> No, I'm just really glad to hear that people aren't, the majority of people that we spoke to in, you know, that London borough were saying, no, I'm absolutely fine if a carrot looks a bit grim. But let me caveat that. 
the main reason given for that was because you get the grimmer carrot was bigger. Yeah. So you get more carrot for your buck. That's yeah. what everybody said. So price is key. Yeah. If we present two coffees and we say this one's definitely sourced and it's £10 a bag, this one, we don't know where it's sourced from and it's £3, mm. I'd be very, very surprised if more people put a £10 bag of coffee. Ooh. They'll say they will, because I would. If someone comes up to you for a microphone and says, do you want to pick this bag of coffee that's might be made for modern slavery. Not even, say, oh yeah, brilliant. Even if you were, you know, it was just your voice. Maybe a voice. You could put on a voice. We'll do the voice, like disguise it. Read, these responses are read by an actor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll yeah, yeah, absolutely. It'd be an interesting experiment. I just think that price is king and I think as uh, shopping baskets get more expensive, people are going to save where they can. Yeah. And again, I'm not saying that cheap products are made for exploitation. I'm just saying that cheap products don't display that information. Yeah. So we don't know. Really interesting. Look, we could carry on for... Yeah, you know me, I'll talk forever about it. <laughs> We could, we could, but I think, you know, it's a really important discussion. Really enjoyed talking to Paul. Really enjoyed talking to you, Josh. Oh, thanks, Beth. So do I. Yeah, Paul's great. Really, really enjoyed speaking to Paul. He's a lovely bloke as well. He's a lovely bloke and they're doing great work. It's really nice to hear. I love hearing these stories from the food sector because I think we are a good industry. Despite my cynicism, I think we are working hard as an industry to make things better for everybody. That's a lovely way to finish this. It makes me feel, you know, more in a high... Well, I'm glad I've inspired you, Beth, and we're glad I've, I've restored your faith in the food industry. As we said, we could have gone on for, for hours about this, and we probably have. Thank you so much for listening. Wherever you get your podcast, remember there is always more food to come. There's the whole back catalogue to listen back to, and there'll be even more fresh podcasts within the next few weeks or so. So as Beth always says, do keep your ears peeled. But as I said, thank you so much to Paul for his time today, and thank you very much for listening. And Bevan, looking forward to speaking to you again soon. And it's goodbye from me.